The reading this morning is uh, from Romans chapter 8, verses 11 to 25. You can uh, follow along in the Seasons Weekly. You receive when you came in. The words are printed there if you need to follow. This is God's word from Romans 8. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the resurrection. We are amazed at your power and at your glory. And we are amazed for what it means for our life, for our world, here and now. We pray you would open up your word, open up our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear glorious and wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if uh, you've ever noticed the difference in what you can see when you drive a city or a neighborhood versus when you run or, or when you walk. I began to notice this a couple of years ago when I started running more uh, through Kirkwood and through neighborhoods around uh, where I live, is that neighborhoods I thought I was very familiar with, streets that I thought I really knew, I really didn't. Because when I slowed down and stopped driving 40 miles an hour and started running, you know, 7 miles an hour, it was like a whole new world uh, suddenly opened up to me. I began, you know, streets suddenly had names. Uh, neighborhoods suddenly had character. Uh, I noticed features about homes that I've never seen before. I noticed little gardens and beautiful uh, scenes. People that I know uh, knew, but I didn't know where they lived. And I saw them in their yards. I mean, all kinds of things like that. Little businesses I never knew existed. When I slowed down and stopped just simply driving by, driving through, I began to see all kinds of things that I'd never seen before. 
And I wonder if today we kind of live in a culture of, of, of drive-by spirituality. A, a culture of drive-by religion where we drive by very quickly, fail to notice anything, we never slow down, and yet we're constantly perplexed at why we're not amazed or inspired or changed or transformed. See, probably all of us travel the same paths, uh, you know, familiar paths, day in, uh, day out. And probably most of us failing to kind of see much of what is really there. I think Easter can be like that too. It's kind of a drive-by day. It's easy to, you know, drive by Easter time and again, all the while ignoring the stunning vista that God is providing. We drive by Easter as if it's some familiar road to hurry down. Some once-a-year reminder that you know, Jesus was pretty special after all. Or even worse, uh, you know, a, a drive-by day to another opportunity, marketing opportunity for, for bunnies and candy and greeting cards and uh, things like that. It's easy to simply drive by Easter and not see the story that God is telling, the thing that God is doing and showing us. What the resurrection means is that comfort and complacency and indifference no longer have any place. They're no longer appropriate responses. In fact, if you read the accounts of the resurrection, Jeff read one of them to you, the one from John. If you read the accounts, what do you see there? All kinds of words, descriptive words about what they saw and felt. You see terror and joy, fear and love, awe and gratitude. Sadness and delight, running and watching, despair and fulfillment. You see all these things happening. What you do not see is complacency and indifference. You see emotion, exhilaration, because what you're seeing is God exploding into our world, exploding into history in such a way that all the earth feels it and is now different. That, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus happened, it is actually almost unquestioned now. E even by secular historians, it is almost an unquestioned fact of history. No longer an article of faith, uh, a fact of history, because for 2,000 years, no one, try as they might, has been able to offer any alternative, plausible explanation to what must have happened that morning. And so the resurrection cannot be simply spiritualized. It can't be just smiled at. It can't be placed in our hearts and our minds as just a metaphor for new beginnings. It is a fact of history as, as plain as the fact that George Washington crossed the Delaware in 1776. I know that for some of you, that statement alone will be a problem. And uh, I, it's definitely worth talking about. I'd love to talk to you about that afterward. But I think for more of you, the question is, okay, maybe it did happen. So what? Maybe it did happen. What does it really mean for me? What does it really mean for our world? And one of those meetings, one of those visas was opened up to me when, uh, with, my, with my four-year-old uh, a couple months ago when I was talking to him about this. And, uh, you know, when you see through the eyes of a kid, he doesn't always drive by. He's slowing down to see. And I was talking to him about, we were reading in bed about the, the crucifixion, and we started talking about the resurrection. We talked about Jesus' death, and then we said, here's the, you know, the open tomb, the stones rolled away, Jesus is alive. And he thought for a minute, and he said, Daddy... The resurrection means that Jesus, that God is putting the whole world back together again. I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing for a four-year-old. I didn't even think about that. Because I was simply driving by as well. But what he's saying is that if God has put Jesus' own body back together, 
then He is putting our lives back together. He is putting the whole world itself back together. And this passage really shows us three, three primary ways He does. We don't have time to spend a lot of time there, but to show you a couple of suggestions. He's putting our lives back together. He's putting our suffering and our grief back together. And He's going to put all of creation back together. Look at the first thing he says, putting our lives back together. The first thing that resurrection means, he, he, he mentions it right there right there in verse 11, starts off, he says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, he starts out with resurrection, right? That the Holy Spirit is active in raising Jesus from the dead. And then in verse 12, what does he say? So then. What does it mean? What, what, what significance does it have? What is it? So what? He says, so then, and he begins to tell everything the resurrection will mean for us and our world. It, you know, it's as if you said, I'm done making dinner, so then, come to the table and get your plate. You know, this reality has practical consequences for your life. And he begins to open, open them up for us. Look what resurrection may, makes possible, he says. Stop, stop driving by and look and see. He says, verse 15 and 16, this is what it makes possible. That you might not receive a spirit of slavery... He says, the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. You see what it says there? The Spirit who raised Jesus will give you life too. If the resurrection is true, then you can have forgiveness of sins. If the resurrection is true, then you can be adopted into the very family of God Himself. If the resurrection is true, then the removal of fear and entrapment and slavery is actually a real possibility for your life in this world. If the resurrection is true, then God can no longer no longer simply be theorized about, he can actually be known. If the resurrection is true, he says here in verse 17, then you can be an inheritor. An inheritor of everything that God has. If the resurrection is true, then the time of spiritual seeking is over and the day of finding is here. And we live in an age of spiritual seeking where it's almost like a means, it's almost an end in itself to be a seeker. And to say, oh, I'm seeking. But if the resurrection is true, then the day of seeking is over and the day of finding is actually here. And so what the resurrection says is today is the day of salvation. The day is the day to repent and find yourself embraced, not by a teaching, not by an ethic, but by a living Savior, a resurrected Savior named Jesus Christ. See, I believe that what my son Jude saw in the crucifixion that made him say that, was what he saw was that Jesus took on all the brokenness of the world, all the sin, and he swallowed it down, letting it literally bury him. And then, in the resurrection, he saw that that same brokenness and sin was buried and broken by Jesus, and left there in the tomb to be buried forever. The Christian church has a tradition of these Easter sunrise services, right? Because in the morning, it was early in the morning, it was actually before dark, that the women first went to the tomb. It was early in the morning that Jesus' body first stirred. It was early in the morning that a man who had not taken a breath for three days, that a man who had not blinked, who had not heard the thud of his heart in his chest for three days, suddenly stirred to life. Suddenly began to blink, suddenly began to breathe and take in air. But the resurrection, we can't look at it simply as a it's not a resuscitation. It's not a it's not a magic trick. 
It's not a near-death experience. It's not Jesus passing out to be revived later. It's not even just Jesus slipping away from the grip of death. It is Jesus breaking the hands of death. It is Jesus coming and looking sin and Satan and death square in the eye and breaking them and breaking out their grip, breaking out their teeth. How can you know? How can you have certainty that God can actually remove brokenness? How can you have certainty that you can actually have forgiveness of sin? You can be adopted into God's family. How can you have certainty about something like that? Certainty that God is going to put your broken life together again. The answer is the resurrection. The answer is the resurrection. The resurrection is what one pastor has called the cosmic receipt of history. The cosmic receipt of all history. God writing across the pages of history paid in full. Then why do you keep receipts? It's proof of purchase, right? You know, most people have like this dreaded fear of the IRS coming and auditing them. And, and I actually kind of have like this perverse desire that I will get audited by the IRS because I keep these meticulous. So I know this is giving me a lot of feedback. Alright, how about that? Sounds a lot better. So as I was saying, uh, I have this perverse kind of desire that the IRS will actually audit me because I keep these meticulous financial records and I'm kind of neurotic and I kind of drive myself crazy even doing it. But I, I kind of long for the day that the auditor knocks on the door and says, oh, we don't believe you did this, we don't believe you paid this, we don't believe you did this right. And I'll be able to go to the basement and pull out all these files of receipts and be like, bam, in your face, IRS. Because I'll be able to show them the receipts. I'll be able to show them the proof of purchase. And I wonder how often we drive by the resurrection and don't show the receipt. How many times all of us have these voices in our heads, voices in our minds, voices in our hearts that are condemning us, telling us we're not, we're con- you're condemned, you're not worthy, God can never love you, God can never forgive you for that, you're not, you'll never be a good enough father, a good enough husband, a good enough wife, a good enough uh, whatever. Have you ever thought about showing the receipt? the resurrection is true, then we are no longer in our sins. Because paid in full has been written across the pages of history itself. If the resurrection is false, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're to be pitied above all people. That we're still in our sins. But if the resurrection is true, it's been paid in full. If Jesus was not raised, he's simply another teacher who died nobly, no more important than any other death. But what does Jesus say? He says, I'm not just coming to point you to the way to live, but I am the life. I have crossed the chasm. I have bridged the gulf between you and God. And my resurrection is the cosmic receipt of that. That I'm putting your life back together. We can't just drive by. We have to slow down and see. So he's putting our lives back together. He's also putting our suffering back together. Putting our grief, our pain back together. You know, one of the biggest kind of philosophical and practical questions about Christianity is how can a good God allow suffering and pain and evil in the world and in my life? And Paul says the resurrection points to one part of the answer to that question. See, the Bible doesn't attempt, the Bible never attempts, Christianity never attempts to pretend evil doesn't exist, pretend suffering doesn't exist, pretend that your life and my life uh, does not have pain. The Bible actually acknowledges the reality that every one of us are scarred. That every one of us are wounded, all of us are broken and have shed tears 
of sorrow. All of us have felt sting and pain and loneliness. And in fact, we know that God himself did not avoid it, right? We just, we just celebrated Good Friday. The crucifixion. The death of Jesus himself. It mentions it in verse 17 that we suffer with Christ. So Christ has come. He suffered with us, for us, and more than us. But do you hear what he says in verse 18? He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Which he says in verse 23, he describes as what? Look at verse 23. The redemption of, what do you expect to see? Our souls. No, our bodies. The redemption of our bodies is what he says. He says, if you look at Jesus who was physically raised, who still maintains his physical body, we too have a physical future. We see our future in him. We have a physical future to look forward to where everything crooked will be straight. Where we will dance like the greatest of dancers. Where we eat the greatest of foods. Where all your physical maladies and old age will be healed. Where we will travel like the wealthiest millionaires. We'll sing and play and worship in ways that are simply unimaginable to us now in the present. Tim Keller, pastor of New York City, writes this. The, the, he says, the biblical view of things is resurrection. Not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, it's like Samwise Gamgee said when he found out Gandalf was still alive. He said, is it true? Are all the sad things really coming untrue? In the resurrection, that's what he's saying, that all the sad things are actually coming untrue. What's he saying there? That Jesus, he's saying Jesus did not abolish suffering. He absorbed it. He didn't sidestep suffering. He swallowed it. He didn't stop the crucifixion. He actually rose from the dead. And in that, he took a crown of thorns, and in the resurrection, he twisted it into a crown of glory. He took the cross of death, and in the resurrection, he made it into a place of life. And that's what the resurrection means for your pain and for my pain. Think about your life for a moment. Think about all the limitations, all the pain, all the sadness you've ever experienced. And what this says is that every cross that you will bear, every thorn that will come into your flesh, every tear that you will shed, that God will take that like the crown of thorns and twist it into a crown of glory. The resurrection is true. Every horrible, terrible, evil thing that happens to you in this world will be twisted and made not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in the true resurrection. The resurrection is the first mark that God is putting everything back together again. You all, you've, you've probably all heard stories of martyrs, right? I mean, in the early church, the martyrs faced death. They, they, they faced the lions in the arena. They faced fire at the stake. They faced the gallows. And they did it not with scorning people, but with singing of praises. It was amazing. Wouldn't you love to have what they had? Wouldn't you love to have that kind of strength 
in life. They had that because they actually believed in the resurrection. See, the resurrection, what Paul is saying, the resurrection can give you strength and power to endure anything in this world. Saying that there's nothing this world can give you, and there's nothing this world can take from you that is greater than God Himself and greater than what God will give back to us. The resurrection is true. God is making all things right. We shouldn't just drive by that. We should stop and ponder it. Because if the resurrection is true, it also means that we can relax about our limitations, physical and financial, here and now. All the things you think you can't do that you're going to miss out on, all the opportunities you think you're not going to get, God is going to restore in the resurrection. So we can live life here not without fear, without regret. We can sacrifice, we can give, we can be generous. Because it's all, it's all going to come back in the resurrection. See, Christianity is the only religion to give us a man raised from the dead. Not simply a story, but certainty. That every bit of suffering is redeemed, that God is putting it back together again. So He's putting our lives back together again. He's putting our suffering, our grief. He's also doing something bigger than just you and me. It's not, it's not just all about us and our individual. But, he, but, but this passage says He's putting all of creation back together again. What does it say in verses uh, 19 and following? It says, The creation waits with eager longing. The creation was subjected to futility in hope that it could be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know the whole creation has been groaning in the pangs of childbirth until now. What is Paul saying? He's saying if resurrection is true, then this whole world matters. Everything that you and I do matters. Paul says the creation, this world is not going to be destroyed. It is going to be liberated. It is going to be renewed. It is going to be restored. Just as God put Jesus' body back together, He will put all of His creation back together. And He uses there the image of childbirth, right? Many of you have experienced it or, or witnessed it. What, what is childbirth like? I mean, it's this great groaning, right? He says groaning and pain, but with a joy and a future that is coming. Groaning and pain in the present, but a future that will be glorious and that will outweigh the present pain when that child comes into, uh, actually comes into existence. In fact, he's saying the pain is the evidence of the amazing gift that is coming, that is being birthed. So the resurrection tells us that God loves His creation. He loves this world even more than you and I do. The scriptures tell us in other places that when Jesus comes again, when the King comes, that all of creation will rejoice. It says the seas will roar with laughter, the rivers will clap, the trees will actually sing and dance, the grass will, will exult. I mean, that's an amazing vision of what will happen when all of the world, all of creation is actually renewed. See, the resurrection tells us something new, something fresh has happened in the world. God has launched His project of redemption, He's putting everything back together again in Christ. And the task of the resurrection is to see the world not just as it is today in its groaning and brokenness, not just even as it should be, but as it will one day be when God puts it back together. See, those who have glimpsed the future will be different in the present. Those who have glimpsed the future will be changed in the present. If God loves His world this much, 
That means he hates everything that distorts it. He hates injustice and poverty and strife and disease. And therefore, we should learn to adopt his burdens. We should learn to adopt and love and love the very things that God loves. So you see what the resurrection does? On the one hand, it shows us the future and it says to us, to those who are Christians, we should be the most relaxed party people of all the world. We should be like, you know, World Series champions uncorking champagne in a locker room on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, we should be people who are fighters, who take this world seriously and fight for the goodness of this world, fight against injustice and poverty, and fight to see signs of God putting His world back together again. The resurrection is calling us to adopt the mind and the heart of God for His creation, to fight all that distorts it. And as the world groans under injustice and poverty and strife and disease, Christians should meet the world in prayer and in action at the points of its greatest pain. We should meet the world in prayer and action at the point of the world's greatest pain. If the resurrection is false, then that means that sin and injustice and suffering and death have won. And we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if the resurrection is true, then that means that Jesus has won. And those things are buried in the tomb. And our lives can have meaning and significance now. One of the most familiar of all children's nursery rhymes in the English language is Humpty Dumpty, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's almost a parable for life, a parable for the world that anybody knows. You don't have to be a person of faith. Anybody knows you look in the world, something's not right. There's a fall that's taking place. Something is broken. And people are scattering to put it back together again. But no matter how many ways we try, all the king's horses and all the king's men will never put a broken world together again. But in the nursery rhyme, they never thought to ask the king himself. And maybe the king himself can put all his world together again. If the resurrection is true, then the king has come. If the resurrection is true, the king has won. If the resurrection is true, the king is coming again. And he is at present putting the world back together again and will one day put everything together again and make all things new. Don't drive by it this morning. Stop. Slow down. Believe it. Embrace it. And live the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we take a moment because we're blown away at the meaning of the resurrection. That we could truly have our lives put together again, our alienation from you bridged, that we could have our suffering and our grief not be meaningless, but be meaningful. And that everything that you have made, all of your creation, might be restored and that we might be participants in the work you're doing to build your kingdom. Father, by your grace, would you make this so? Help us to slow down, not simply drive by. Help us to see you at work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.